Once again, I want to take the opportunity to welcome you to Christ the King Anglican Church. Uh, this is actually my first uh, time leading a service and preaching a message here at Christ the King Anglican Church. And I have to, I have to admit something. Um, I feel very intimidated sharing the word of God with you here at Christ the King because I've been listening to the sermons preached here at Christ the King for over a year and a half, and you guys have some really great preachers. Um, Keith and, and now Glenn, uh, who's the interim rector, are tremendous biblical scholars. And it is, it, it's intimidating for me to come up and try and, and share the word of God with you in a way that, um, <laughs> that isn't uh, profoundly uh, scary for someone like me to come up before you. But on the other hand, I have great confidence in that word and in what God has to say to us here today. Today, which is the day after Christmas, it's the day when, you know, many of us, we feel like we can finally relax. Many of you have children, many of you do not. Uh, but for those of you who have children, you know how exhausting the last few days <laughs> can be. In fact, not just the last few days, the last few weeks and even months preparing for that special day. Whether you celebrate on Christmas Eve, uh, on the, uh, at, at an evening service, and that's, that's when you, you, you cook your big meal and you exchange gifts, or whether it's the morning of the 25th, whenever that is, I think many of us, we get to the end of, of the 25th and we relax and we say, all right, it's done. And I don't know about you, but many years, even before I became a parent, um, but certainly since, I, I get to the end and I and I take stock of what's just happened, of what we've just been through as a family or as a community or as a church. And, and I say, did I really connect with Jesus over the Christmas holiday? I don't know if you've ever stopped and asked yourself that kind of a question. And, and with all of the busyness, with all of the preparation, I mean, honestly, yesterday we spent probably four to six hours cooking. But did I actually have a moment to connect with Jesus? Did I find him during the Christmas holidays? And as I've been talking with some of you during, you know, uh, just over the last few minutes uh, before we began worship, I think many of us have felt during the, the last couple of years with a raging pandemic and everything going on is that our Christmas celebrations themselves have often been stifled. We haven't had the people over uh, that we wanted to have over. Last year, many churches weren't even able to open their doors and even this year, there's kind of a, there's a little bit of a cloud hanging over many of our worship services, a little bit of an anxiety as to what is going to happen next. I felt it a few weeks ago when the news began coming out about Omicron, and I'm sure many of you did as well. We begin to worry. And with everything happening in the world, with everything happening, happening in our lives, with the fears that we see in each other's faces, I think one of the questions becomes, are we connecting with Jesus? Have we found Jesus? What do I need to do to find Jesus? And I think it's a good question as we cross from the 25th to the 26th and beyond, as we approach this new year, how can I find Jesus? Whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the umpteenth time. This is where the passage that we read today I think really points us in the right direction. Now, that said, I think many of you might have listened to the passage this evening and said, well, that's not a Christmas 
That's not a Christmas Bible story. Jesus is 12 years old. He gets lost in Jerusalem. What does this have to do with Christmas trees and the nativity? What does this have to do with, you know, Mary coming in on the donkey and not finding room in the inn? Well, I think that there is a lot here. This is not just in the same chapter, chapter 2 of chapter Luke. And I invite you to turn there uh, in the Bibles if you, if you want. Luke chapter 2 beginning with verse 41, and I didn't look up which page this is. Can someone just shout out the page when you find it? Because I didn't look it up in the black or in the white Bibles. Pardon? Page 806 uh, in, the, in the black ESV Bibles there. I invite you to look it up. This, it rounds out chapter 2. Chapter 2 begins with Joseph going up from Jerusalem from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And chapter two ends with Jesus, along with Joseph and Mary, going from Jerusalem back to Nazareth. In fact, in chapter two, there's a whole lot of back and forth between Galilee, which is where Nazareth is, and Jerusalem in Judea. A lot of back and forth happening that gives a little bit of a preview as to what's going to happen in the entire book of Luke. If you look at the book of Luke as a whole, it is mostly a journey from Galilee, where Jesus begins his ministry, to all the way to Jerusalem. There's a moment in Luke chapter 9 where it says that Jesus fixes his face towards Jerusalem. And from that moment on, most of the book of Luke is just Jesus teaching and ministering on his way to Jerusalem, showing us who he is and what the heart of God is. Is all about well we see a little bit of a preview here as jesus and his family they go up from nazareth to jerusalem but now jesus and his family go back from jerusalem to nazareth again so in i think in some ways luke the evangelist is trying to tell a story which begins with caesar augustus and quirinius governor of syria and a census and and joseph taking his family back to bethlehem which is just a few miles from jerusalem taking his family up to judea that story finds its conclusion in what we read today, even though Jesus is 12 years old. And the punchline of this story, right? Joseph and Mary come to Jesus. They're uh, lying in a manger, not lying in a manger, but uh, sit, sitting there in the temple. And they say, Jesus, we have been looking for you. And Jesus says, well, you should have been able to find me pretty easily. I was not hard to find. He says, you should have known that I was going to be about my father's business. You could have found me in my father's house. And here, on the other side of the Christmas holiday, I think we can relate to that answer that Jesus gives, in that as we look for Jesus and we say, well, where is Jesus to be found? Whether it's in my, my own personal life or in our life as a community, as a church, we say, where in all of this can we actually have an encounter and a connection with Jesus? The answer is, well, Jesus is going about his father's business. Look for him there. But Joseph and Mary don't really understand, which, of course, is funny. You would think that Joseph and Mary, of all people, would understand what Jesus is talking about. But like so many things in the Gospels, what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing is incomprehensible until you get to the end until you experience the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's incomprehensible. But it's not just incomprehensible for them. I think many of us, if I were to say, well, if, if you're going to find Jesus, you need to look for Jesus going about his father's business. You would say, that is so true, Pastor. 100%. Where is that? 
How do I do that? Show me. Explain to me. What do I need to know? What do I need to experience in order to be able to encounter Jesus going about his father's business? And I am going to spend our sermon today illustrating from this passage just a few things, three things, three ways in which I believe that we can find Jesus going about his father's business and where it can have a meaningful impact on our life. I think, in fact, what Luke is doing in this passage is setting up the entire rest of the gospel. And as we look to connect Luke chapter 2 with Luke chapter 24, which is the last chapter in Luke, we're going to see a number of connections which point us towards ways in which we can connect with Jesus and ways in which we can find Jesus as he goes about his father's business. So, the first thing that I would point us towards is that we encounter Jesus in his work of redemption, in the work of redemption, in Jesus's work of salvation, in what he is doing to redeem a fallen humanity. That is the first place in which we find, in which we are going to find Jesus. If we're going to find him going about his father's business, this is where we are going to find him. Now, let's begin, just go back to the beginning of the story, right? Years have passed since Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And having been born in Bethlehem, and from the, the gospel according to St. Matthew, we know that Jesus has been all over the place by now. After, you know, probably about two years, his family uh, has to flee from Bethlehem and go to Egypt, out of which they emerge after the death of King Herod, and they return to Nazareth. And there in Nazareth, we really don't know much about the early formative years of Jesus's life. There are stories that were passed down within the early church about what Jesus's early life was like, and they're very strange and weird. <laughs> so you take it with a grain of salt. Uh, some of them show up in Mel Gibson's movie about the Passion of the Christ. But th there's, some, there's some strange stories about child Jesus, but we really don't know that much until we get to this point. But what we do know, we read first of all in verse 41. In verse 41, it says that Jesus's parents were accustomed, as was the custom of the Jews, to go up to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. Now, why does he add this? Well, it tells us a few things. First of all, that Joseph, as a as an Israelite, as a Jewish person living in the first century, was adhering to the law of Moses. The law of Moses actually said that there were three times in the year that every adult male was supposed to go up from wherever they lived and to go to Jerusalem to worship. The first of those was on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Barley, also known as the Passover. The second was what we today refer to as Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Wheat. Then the third was about, was, well, it was probably about September-ish time frame, and that would have been what is referred to as the Feast of Booths. Every adult male Israelite was expected to go up and worship the Lord in the temple in Jerusalem every year. What this shows us is that not only was Joseph doing this, but Mary herself was as well, which indicated, I think, to, in general, this was a family that was committed to the Lord. It was committed to the Lord, and it was committed to following him. It wasn't just that Mary had Jesus, and then she went about her business and lived life just like everyone else. No, it shows them going above and beyond. Now, would Jesus have ordinarily gone up with them? Probably not. It was a long journey. It was very dangerous, and it was not strictly necessary. But Jesus, however, Jesus had reached 12 years of age, 
And Luke says that now he was going to be going up with his parents to the feast. Now, this tells us a few things. The first is, is that although children attain their, the, their majority, right? They were no longer minors in, in Jewish law around age 20, right? It was at age 20 that Jewish males could be conscripted into the army under Moses's law. And that would continue to be a tradition in terms of understanding when you were fully adult as a young man, it was around age 20. However, the age of puberty came earlier and it was around age 13 that Jewish, young Jewish boys were intended to begin taking up their responsibility as a part of the worshiping community. They became a part of the quorum of necessary people that would um, that could constitute a, a enough people to make decisions in the community. It was at age 12, for instance, that a young Jewish male would begin putting the verses of scripture on his hands and on his forehead, what are called phylacteries, right? That's when he would begin putting those things on himself. These days, what we would call it would be a bar mitzvah, right? Many of you may have Jewish friends who had their bar mitzvahs. They make quite a party about it these days, uh, if, you have, if you're able to. Um, but that practice is still happening today. This would have been a little young for it. It was allowed under Jewish tradition that if a young boy had sufficient training in the law of Moses, he, he had studied the word of God well enough. And this usually meant back then memorizing most of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, literally memorizing it and memorizing most of the Psalms as well. If a young man had reached that point even earlier than 13, well then good. And this apparently was the case for Jesus. He, by age 12, he had... He had become a son of the covenant, a son of the commandment. And 12 is a significant number. It 12, just like this is a Passover event, 12 itself refers to the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a little indication that God has a special call and commitment to this boy and to, his, uh, to, this, to the mission that this young man has in the world. Not only that, but Luke actually refers to him as, in our translation, the boy Jesus, which makes sense. This is the word for which we get, for instance, pediatrician, right? The, the ped in pediatrician is, is a similar word to the word that he uses here. However, Luke, whether he's writing in Luke or whether he's writing in Acts, almost always uses this word to refer not to a boy who is young or to the son of a particular kind of parent, but to a servant, right? in the sense that you would refer to your servant or to your slave as boy, that is the sense in which Luke uses it to refer to people like David, King David, or to Moses, the prophet, and especially to Jesus. This is the word that he refers to, to Jesus, the servant of God, the servant of the Lord. And this picks up on the language that we read in the Old Testament especially in Isaiah. When Isaiah is talking about the servant of the Lord, behold, my servant will act wisely. I know that Keith was preaching on this a few weeks ago uh, in Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53, when it refers to the servant of the Lord, this is the word that is being used. Jesus is being pointed out not just as a boy, not just that he is young, young enough that his parents have to worry about him as he is, um, worry about him as he is lost in Jerusalem, but that he is the servant of the Lord that is being talked about in Isaiah, in, in Isaiah chapters 42 to 53. That he is the one that has come 
to enact the will of the Lord, to bring about the kingdom of God, the one to be the, God's right hand here in this world. Luke is telling us all of this right here, that Jesus, in fact, is on a mission. And we can see this mission in the details of what's happening here. This ultimately becomes fulfilled because this mission brings him where? It brings him into the temple of the Lord. That temple where lambs would have been sacrificed by the priests. The temple of the Lord where offerings would have been made morning and evening and all throughout the day to give praise to the Lord and to ask for his forgiveness. Repeated endlessly and endlessly and endlessly. The temple of the Lord where his word went out, where people shared the word of God. And not only this, but this all culminates. We find Jesus there in the temple, surrounded by the teachers, seated in their midst after three days, right? After a three-day search. Joseph and Mary have celebrated the Passover with Jesus. They go back to Nazareth, or they begin the journey back to Nazareth, and Jesus hangs out in Jerusalem and stays behind. After a day of traveling on the road, they go one day, they realize that he is not with them, they turn around, that's another day of travel, and then they spend a whole day looking around in Jerusalem. But this is the first time in Luke a three-day sequence like this is mentioned. And it's one of the last until we begin to get premonitions from Jesus, little predictions that on the third day that he would rise again. So let me put all of these pieces together, okay? So we have an emphasis on the Passover, that very time in which Jesus is going to be betrayed, he is going to be tried, he is going to be crucified, he is going to be buried, and he is going to be raised again from the dead. This is the first time in Luke and the last time in Luke until we get to the end of Jesus's life that the Passover is announced. Secondly, Jesus's age and the title that refers to him points to the fact that Jesus himself is the true embodiment of God's people, of Israel, and that he, as the servant of the Lord, has come meekly like a lamb led to the slaughter to enact and to realize the purposes and the plans of God. We see this happening with a focus on the liturgical and the sacrificial life of Israel. And we see that this is pointing in the direction of the third day. That having been dead in the heart of Mary and Joseph, as it were, for three days, right? That they will discover that Jesus is alive. Just as a side note, and not, not wanting to derail my sermon here a little bit, but it is terrifying to think about your children being lost like this. I, I only recently became a father. When I was a child, I, around the age of nine or 10, my parents lost me in an amusement park uh, around Cincinnati. It's called, um, what is it called? I just blanked on the name. King, uh, King's Island. King's Island Amusement Park. And for a long time, it, it had the record for the longest wooden roller coaster in the world. Well, around age 10, I turned around and I couldn't find my parents. They were lost in the crowd and I was lost and I started wandering around trying to find them. I tracked down a security guard and it was fine, but I was terrified. And now that I'm a parent, you can hear my kids down the hall here. Um, now that I'm a parent, I have to say, it must have been way worse to be them than to be me. The kind of terror, the, the, the language that Mary uses when she says, we were in agony looking for you, son. Well, I am beginning to understand that as a parent. As far as she was concerned, as far as Joseph were, were, were concerned, even though they didn't know that he was dead, and I'm sure they were telling themselves that he wasn't, there was that fear in their heart that they would never see their son again. And here, on the third day, they find their son teaching in the temple. 
if this doesn't point forward to what is going to happen at the end of the book of Luke, if this doesn't point forward to what Jesus' ministry is all about, how he came to redeem us, to save us from our sins, to show God's love by bringing all the love that could possibly be imagined by giving up his own life for us on the cross and conquering death and hell by being raised again from the dead. I, I, I don't think that you can read it in any other way. This is what Luke wants us to get. And it's interesting that when Jesus is raised from the dead and the women, including his mother Mary, go to the tomb expecting to find him dead, they show up and there's an angel sitting there. And what does the angel say to them? The angel says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? What are you searching for? Why are you looking for Jesus here? It's an interesting throwback to Luke chapter 2, which is what we read today. As Jesus tells his parents, you know, why were you looking for me here? You knew I needed to be about my father's business. Then the angel there at the end of, book, at the end of Luke chapter 24, sorry, at the end of the book of Luke, the beginning of chapter 24, what does the angel say? He says, why are you looking for Jesus among the dead? He is not dead and he is not here. He is alive. He has risen from the dead. So where does that mean that we are supposed to look for him now? We have to take into account this entire story that has been told where Jesus, having become the embodiment of Israel and a new Adam, a new representative of humanity there before his father who has loved us who has served us who has enacted the kingdom among us who has lived and died and suffered and who has been raised again from the dead for us where do we need to find jesus first of all we need to find him alive among the living we cannot begin with the assumption that he is far off. We cannot begin with the assumption that he is simply inaccessible to us. He is not dead, he is alive. He has been raised to life again, never to die anymore. Not only that, but it is recorded for us in scripture that he has ascended into heaven and that he is interceding for us there at the right hand of the Father, that he is praying for us, that he is reaching out to us, that he is sending out his gifts as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, that he pours down his gifts upon his people and leads his enemies in triumphal procession. This is a Jesus who has conquered because the lamb who was slain is worthy to receive all honor and glory, power and dominion. This is the Jesus that we are to search for right now. It is good for us to think about him lying in a manger, cute and cuddly, a silent word. But this is the word who, as the book of Revelation portrays him, is galloping on a horse, ready to make war against his enemies, who, because his name is the word of God, and he bears on his, in his chest the heart that has loved every single one of us, it is not so much that we have to go looking for him, but he has come looking for us. We are going to find Jesus when we, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, having been raised with Christ, seek Christ where he is seated above, at the right hand of the Father. We are supposed to seek him because he is our life. And when he appears, we also will appear with him in glory.
Now, you may still say, but, but how do I do that? Well, first of all, we call upon his name. Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. And it also says that if you want to be saved, you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And what does that give you? That gives you an encounter with Jesus Christ. But let's be even more concrete. And I'm going to pass on to my second point. And just to warn, not to warn you, but to alleviate some of your fears, the next two points are faster than the last one because we were covering a little bit of ground there. But we encounter Jesus not just in the work of his redemption, but we encounter Jesus in the word of his revelation. He revealing himself, Jesus speaking his words to us, is our way of encountering Jesus. Let's go back to the story here for a second. As he's there in the temple, Jesus is seated. He is sitting down in the temple. Now, for those of us in a Western context and reading with Western eyes, at least many of us reading with Western eyes, we look at that and we say, well, Jesus seems pretty relaxed. And when I go to class, it's the teacher up at the front who is teaching, and we are all seated down in the front listening to the teacher. Uh, that's what we're doing here right now, right? I'm standing up here in front of you. Uh, you're, yeah, all of you are seated here. Uh, listening to me um, as the teaching is happening. We associate the posture of standing with instruction. It was the opposite in the ancient world. The one who was teaching was almost always the one who was seated. The person teaching enjoyed the act of leisure, at least in terms of their posture, and the others listening would be standing around them. Maybe we should adopt that again. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Jesus was in the temple, not simply asking questions because he wanted to know the answers and he was interested in being schooled. Jesus was there in the temple, seated, asking the questions as, for instance, Socrates would, or like any instructor would, who in asking a question is actually saying more than you could ever even give in your answer. Jesus was instructing the people, and that is why the chief priests and the teachers of the law and those who were surrounding him were amazed at his responses. As he was going back and forth, as he was listening to them, that is, as he was adjudicating them and they were listening to him, this 12-year-old boy suddenly become the teacher. Something new was happening. As someone, you know, pointed out about Jesus elsewhere in the Gospels, he taught with authority. He spoke with authority, like Moses, who, having spoken with God face to face, came down from the mountain and his face aglow, spoke the very words of God. Or like Samuel, having heard the voice of God in the temple, emerged to tell Eli the truth about what was going on. And he spoke with authority, and God said that not one of his words were able to fall to the ground, but they all came to pass. Just as Solomon, speaking in the temple that he built with the words and the wisdom of God. Here, the very word of God enters into the midst of the people and he begins sharing his own word with them. And it is transformative. It's interesting that Luke uses the same word for the amazement that these men have, an ecstatic kind of amazement, for the same kind of reaction that the disciples have after Jesus' resurrection, when news reaches them. You may remember about those two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus, right? 
this, the uh, Easter Sunday, the women have gone to the tomb and they have come back with the news that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that Mary Magdalene herself has seen the Lord. And then Jesus, or sorry, not Jesus, Peter and John, they run to the tomb and they find the, that the tomb is empty as well and they come back. And the news reaches the two disciples who begin their long journey to Emmaus. Jesus comes among them. Now, the funny thing about Jesus after the resurrection is that it's really hard to tell when you're talking to Jesus. Jesus, I don't know if, it's, if they just didn't recognize him or if he showed up like a different person each time, but it takes something special to recognize Jesus. For some of the disciples, it's when Jesus shows him his hands and his sides, right? When they see the wounds, when they see the scars, when they see the love in his very flesh and blood that he bears to them, they look at him and they say, ah, that's Jesus. For others, at other moments, it's, it's the miracle, right? Jesus tells them to do the same thing that he did before. They cast the net over on the other side of the boat. They've taken the fish and it's John that realizes it's the Lord. He did the same thing that he did before. But we're going to see what opens their minds and their hearts at this juncture. But Jesus walks with them and he, and he asks them, what are you talking about? And he says, well, we're talking about this Jesus guy. He said, what Jesus guy? You haven't heard about Jesus? Nope, tell me. What have you heard about Jesus? Well, he was amazing. He was a teacher. He was a prophet. We thought he was going to be one, the one to redeem Israel. And it was amazing. And then they just killed him. And then the funniest thing is that we heard the most astonishing report from our women. And that word for astonishment is the very word that we have here as to what the people in the temple were experiencing when they had this encounter with Jesus. Now, with this encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, he says, well, go on. He said, well, they told us that he was, he's been raised from the dead. And the other disciples say that it happened as well, but we don't know what to make of it. And then Jesus says, are you so slow to understand the word of God? Are you so slow to believe what he has told you? And then it says he has spent the next however many miles, I think it's what, seven miles to Emmaus? He spent the next seven miles opening to them the scriptures. The scriptures that Jesus said speak of him. Because when you read from Genesis all the way to, the, well, the end of the Old Testament, I was going to say to Revelation, but Revelation hadn't been written then. We could even say for us, Revelation, Jesus is the main character through the entire thing. And all of those scriptures speak of him. And all of those scriptures, as we read them, as private individuals, and even more so in communities and families and in the church. When we inhabit the word of God, we have an encounter with Jesus because the word made flesh and the word made book are intimately connected. If you want to know who Jesus is, you need to listen to him and listen to his words. It is what he has done for us, but it is also he who is speaking to us. Many of us want to say, well, yes, I, Jesus died for my sins and he rose again from the dead and that's fantastic. But when we start listening to what Jesus actually told us, what he promised us, what he commanded us, what he calls us to do, we get to back up a little bit. Fortunately for these disciples, they were amazed at how Jesus opened up the scriptures and whether it was in, in the, the law or the prophets or the writings, they began to see that it was all about him. And they had that connection with Jesus. 
the word of God opens up Jesus to us. And since Jesus is the one who opens up the Father to us, we can say that where Jesus is active, even though he may be in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where we experience him as living and active is in that sharp double-edged sword of the word of God. It is when we come to the words of Scripture, when we read it, mark it, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we are going to find ourselves in his presence. And it's not just that. Thirdly, we find that we encounter Jesus in the web of his relationships, in the kind of communion that he offers between people. We don't read the Bible in isolation. We don't find salvation in isolation. We don't experience the cross and the resurrection in isolation. We do it in the midst of a community of people like those, frankly, who are gathered here this evening. As we gather together and seek his face in the word, we also find his face in one another, much like Jacob and Esau, when they are finally reunited after after years and years of enmity, Jacob looks at Esau's face and he says, your face looks like the face of God. And we know this because Jacob that previous night had wrestled with an angel. But when he asked what the angel's name was, he said, why do you ask my name? He wrestled with God. Coming back to our story, it ends in kind of a funny way, right? Jesus has a kind of sassy way of talking to his parents, particularly his mother. But then what does he do? He obeys. He submits. This is not unlike the wedding at Cana of Galilee when Jesus, as an adult, is there with his mother as invited guests. And someone comes to Mary and says, we're out of wine. And Mary goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, Mom, why are you doing this to me? It's not my time yet. Mom, stop. And having said that to his mother, what does he do? He goes about his mother's business. Jesus understood that we exist in community. He, even though he was the son of God, even though he was God of God and light of light, very God of very God, even though he was the word that was in the beginning with his father and going about his father's business in the very creation and foundation of this world, he listened to his mother as a human being, as a boy of 12 years old. He listened to his mother. It says he returned with his parents and he was submissive to them. This is a strong word, and I think it fully encapsulated not just Jesus' ministry at that time, where he, as a boy, what was he called by the Lord to do? It was to grow up and to be, to be the boy that his mother wanted him to be. But this was an ongoing reality in the life of Jesus, to the point that there on the cross, as Jesus looks down and he sees the disciple that he loves, and he sees his mother, what does he do? He says, woman... Behold your son, he says to John, behold your mother. He gives them to each other. We see this as his life becomes embedded in Nazareth. 
We have no record of him really doing that much traveling outside of Nazareth. By this point, he would have already been learning his trade, and he takes up with those neighbors and relations that they were supposed to be caravanning with all the way back to Nazareth. Then we get to the end of the book of Luke. And after the resurrection, after Jesus has been traveling with those disciples, they say, they impress upon him, they say, you need to stay. And Jesus, well, as he said, he had plans to keep on going, or at least he, he seemed to pretend that he had plans to keep on going. But what does he do? He stops and he submits himself to them. And there, as they sit down to eat, what does he do? It says, he took the bread. And having given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. Now, I'm not saying this was a communion service, but there was something very communion-like in what he did. And it was in that moment, having heard the word of God and having had the bread broken in front of them, their eyes were open and they realized that they had been walking with Jesus this entire time. They found Jesus. They had the connection with Jesus that they had been looking for. And in that communion, as yes, they shared that bread and in that moment, Jesus, is, Jesus opened their eyes just as he had opened the word of God to them. It, was, it is that act of communion where we not only have fellowship with Christ, but we have fellowship with one another. We who are many, we become one body because we all partake of that one bread. And it is in the face of each other as we gather together, not just to exchange pleasantries and to ask how you're doing and to have small talk, but as we come and as we are united in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, as they were on the day of Pentecost, as they were gathered together in one place. And the Holy Spirit came upon them and turned them from a disparate bunch of people and made them into the people of God, into the body of Christ. It is in this kind of contact, in this kind of fellowship, in this kind of communion that we experience a contact with Jesus. We cannot love Jesus unless we love one another. The entire first epistle of John is all about this. That we have to recognize that when we are engaging with one another, we are engaging with Christ. When we are reaching out to the least of these, we are reaching out to Christ. That we encounter Jesus crucified, risen, and coming again when we show love for ourselves for others, and particularly those who are part of the body of Christ, even more than we show love for our own selves and our own families. We, in other words, we find Jesus in the church, in this fellowship and in this communion. He went back and he was submissive to his mother. Let me bring this sermon to a conclusion. And reflect on Mary here for a second. Now, based on some of what, you, what I've been saying, you might think that I'm going to make this about Mary. I'm not going to make this about Mary. <laughs> in saying that, you know, Jesus was submissive to his mother. I'm not saying that, that he is currently in heaven, you know, just listening to his, Mom, okay, fine, I'll do it. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. Jesus is the king of heaven. She may be the queen mother, but she's not the queen. We are to go to Jesus for everything that we need. And in this, Mary is not our mediator. She is our example. She's the one that shows us in many ways what it means to be a Christian. 
because she was the first Christian. She was the one who bore Jesus in her belly, who walked with him all the way on his life. And one of the things that I think that we can learn from Mary in this passage is that she treasured up all these things in her heart. Our encounter with Jesus is not something that just happens once. It's not just that we find Jesus on the road, whether it was in the moment of our baptism or whether it was in the moment of our conversion, whether it was in the moment of, of a Bible study or here or there. We continually need to be finding Jesus and being found by him. This is an ongoing process. And there's something about the way that Luke says that Mary continually stored up these things in her heart. She did it when he was born. She did it when they went into the temple and Simeon addressed them. And he took Jesus in his arms and he blessed him. It's happened repeatedly throughout the life of Mary that she took these things and she treasured them up in her heart. Because as a mother, she was absorbing every moment that she could find with her son. Every encounter that she had, she carried it with him, with her in her heart. She was there at the beginning, she was there at the end, and she was there at the new beginning. And I would encourage us to do the same. As we are looking for Jesus, it can be frustrating. I want to encourage you, feeling like you found Jesus and finding Jesus are two different things. Feeling like you are far from Jesus and being far from Jesus are two, two different things. You can feel like you have, like you don't feel the presence of God. You can feel like you are far from him. And actually, in your searching, be closer than you've ever been. So I do want to encourage you in that. But I, I do want to say, as we, as we look at the ways in which Jesus allows us to see him at his father's business, going about his father's business, as he brings us together in love, as he feeds us with his word, as he makes himself known and raises us up to heaven to be with him until his coming in glory, I want to encourage us to treasure up these things, hold them in our hearts, to go back over them, think about them, meditate on them, bring them to the Lord in prayer, talk about them with each other, store them up, so that by God's grace, you will not only find Jesus, be found by him, but you will grow in age, in stature, and in favor with God and man. And so we give him the honor and the glory, the power and the dominion, now and forever. Amen.